This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, welcome back to the Outdoor Drive Podcast. This is your boy, East Coast Trev. I am actually down in Dallas, Texas at the Dallas Safari Club for 2022. Very excited to be down here. Um, Had the opportunity to come down here and hang out with my good buddy, Ed, from South Africa. So we're going to do a little podcast here. It's been a little bit of a time. We've been trying to do this for quite some time, even throughout my last adventure, and then now to do this here. So why... Why not? Further ado, uh, let's invite my buddy Ed on and uh, let's have a chat. Ed, how are you, man? I'm good, thanks, Trev. Thanks for having me over for Insty. Absolutely, man. It's been a it's been a long time, and we, you know we've been trying to do this, and you know over the years of knowing you, I mean, it's been what did we figure out? It's been about eight years now, and it was the last time that we got to hang out and this, that, and the other thing. And we've had so many stories, but we need to share them with the rest of the world. I feel like. Yeah, yeah it's been a, I think eight years and. Quite a bit's happened since then, but yep. So why don't we why don't we start it off, man? Why don't you introduce yourself, um, who you are, where you're from, and a little bit about what you do? Okay, so yeah, as as you said, I'm Ed Rosenfelds. Um, I'm from Zimbabwe. Uh, born there, grew up there. Um, I finished my schooling in in South Africa, but Zimbabwe has always been home. And and now I I work do a lot of my work in Mozambique. That's awesome. And so your family had kind of started off as cattle ranchers, and now you have started the business of Western Safari. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about that, like where your family had started and kind of where you are today? Okay, so my my family are uh, are considered the part of the pioneers of of, of Zimbabwe. At that time, it was Rhodesia. Um, my family's been in the country now 120 years. 
So, yeah, they they got involved in in the cattle industry very early on, um, and through through my my grandfather, my great grandfather being very astute uh, businessmen, were able to grow the the cattle business into quite a, quite a big business, and um, through their also through them buying up a lot of land around there, um, quite uniquely, uh, quite a big portion of my, my, my family have been able to always live very close together. So we've got quite a u- unique family in where um, basically all my first cousins live within about, probably about a 50 mile radius of me. So I grew up my whole life with a very tight family. Um, and then, so... Towards the end of of of, uh, of colonial rule and what was Rhodesia and and um, the end of our civil war and whatever and, and getting independence, um, my my dad uh, John Rosenfels had actually risen through the ranks and was actually serving as as president of the Rhodesian and then the Zimbabwean Cattle Producers Association, and through a lot of his meetings of. Um, having to meet with people and he was hearing the problems they were having with wildlife interacting with their with their cattle ranching and the problems they were having and all the issues that were arising and my dad was also traveling around the world um, attending meetings for selling beef Um, it came upon him that we needed to get into the wildlife industry the future was in wildlife and so my dad was came back and although he was president of the cattle producers association he was also founder then of what became the Zimbabwe Wildlife Association. And um, he went about even convincing many of the cattle ranchers to give up cattle ranching and to start looking after their wildlife rather, which being a president of the Beef Association was quite frowned upon at the time. Um, at that time, when my dad went into it, he was um, probably a, f- a younger man. He was only, he was, he was the youngest ever president of the Zimbabwe Beef, Beef Producers Association. At, at, I think he was just at the age of about 34. And um, with him deciding that they wanted to go into the wildlife industry, he looked about how he could go into it. And along with a very good friend of his from school, um, they decided they wanted to form a, a hunting a hunting and safari business. Um, but they didn't really have an area with enough wildlife at the time, so they went to a, a mutual associate who lived near Victoria Falls on the very west of, of Zimbabwe, and that's why we became Western Safaris, because we were in the extreme west of the country. Um, hence why lots of people look at our name and they think, how the hell did they come up with this name Western? It's got nothing to do with hunting, or, but it was in the extreme west of the country. Um, and then upon their meetings, and they discussed it, and this friend, uh, a man called Larry Cummings, who had a, a magnificent game area near Victoria Falls, he agreed to join them and said they can uh, utilize his areas and hunt his areas. Um, but with the three of them, they were all fairly young men, um, hadn't made much money in their life yet, and they needed a financial backer. And so when my dad went and spoke to um, to his older brothers about how he could go about it, his oldest brother, who at the time was actually now a senator in the in the Zimbabwe government, 
um, turned around and said he would back him. He would come in as a fourth partner in the business. And partly because he said he wouldn't put the money in unless my dad had 50% of the shares, i.e. through him have a controlling stake in the business, he wouldn't get involved. So that's how Western Safaris was formed. Now, so with it, I think you have kind of like a very special type of of business over there because a lot of people, I think that they think, one, they think a little bit different when they think of African hunting, right? They think of the South African hunting. But for you guys, it's a little bit different. It's, as we would say, kind of take the safety belt off of African hunting when you start to hunt with you guys, where it's a little bit, it's, it's that real safari and the the other thing about you guys is that it's a family-owned business for you guys. It's a very small operation and a family-owned operation. Yeah, so like I was alluding to, so because it was the two brothers were were in the original form-up, and fairly quickly as the company took off and safari industry became successful, actually the other two partners left and, and figured they could go on their own. They were making enough, and Western Safaris just remained in the two brothers and it became fully owned by the by the two brothers and so it was only for a very few years that we had had the four partners it very soon became a, a purely family business and since then it's it's remained a family business it's it's so for we now the second generation my brother and i are, are basically running it still with my dad's input in that excuse me but it's it still remains very much a family business and as Trevor said, um, because we keep it in the family, we've we've tried to keep our business not on purpose small, but we didn't want it to get too big. In that uh, we wanted to keep the personal touch, even even when we're at the height of our the height of our ever time of being in the business. Um, my dad always, as the as the patriarch of the of the company, always insisted of being able to see and spend some time with every client. Um, even if he couldn't personally be their guide, he would certainly be in camp for some period of their hunt, and they would get to at least meet the man. Because a lot of, a lot of, from my understanding, is a lot of the African hunting can be very commercialized sometimes, and not that personal one-on-one experience. Yeah, it, it can get very um, commercialized, and certainly in in the late nineties and early twenties, it, it it took off and got into. Um, it got very personalized, yep. um, well, unpersonalized, more commercial. Um, lots of people didn't even know they didn't really have a relationship with their professional hunters. Um, even professional hunters were just brought in to carry out a safari. They weren't actually attached to the businesses, the, to the operations that they were working in. So when when you kind of got into the business and kind of started your thing, you had to go to school to become a PH. And I think a lot of people don't understand what it actually takes to become a PH. Um, so why don't you let them know, you know, what you had to go through, how you went through the steps and, and the schooling and how important it actually is in the field. Okay, so Zimbabwe, the, the Zimbabwe uh, system of, of uh, I don't know what the correct word would be for it, but the Zimbabwe system of attaining your full, a full professional guides license, whether it be a hunting guide or a photographic guide, is on the same basis, but it's a very rigorous um, and lengthy, fairly lengthy process. Um, the, I'll, to just briefly go through it, 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 it involves, first of all, writing a written exam, um, which will test you on, it's four papers written over two days, 
and pretty much anybody, as long as you've owned a driver's license and are over the age of 16 and, um, and are a Zimbabwe resident, is allowed to write it. This is the minimum entry, and once you manage to pass those four papers, you are issued what is called a learner professional hunter's license. So basically, you may now be a, a learner and an apprentice under a fully qualified guide. Um, you, your next step then is to find a, find a fully licensed uh, guide um, or hunter who will, who will uh, enter into a contract with you and write a letter certifying that he will take you on as, a, as an apprentice. And you then need to serve a minimum of two years apprenticeship under him under which every safari that you accompany with him, he, you will, he will write in your logbook as to how you performed, where you were good, what you need to work on, how you, what you need to improve. And during this two-year process, you are also required to um, undergo a, a shooting exam and where you'll be, you'll be tested on both accuracy, speed, and just keeping calm under pressure. And firing a big heavy caliber rifle so our under our laws um the minimum caliber that we have to be able to shoot proficiently is a 375 holland and holland so the exam will be carried out in that caliber or bigger um once you've attained those once you've got your past your shooting exam and your and your and your professional hunter feels that you are capable of of, of now going out on yourself and and doing it he will he will help you to he'll help you to shoot you you, you need to shoot five dangerous game uh, personally Jeez. Um, <laughs> and so this is normally done with um because obviously the dangerous game being elephant buffalo lion or leopard and you know normally two of them at minimum of two have to be have to be elephant so basically, you you have to shoot at least two elephant and three of the others. Are elephant because they're 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 just that much more dangerous than the other ones, or they feel that, or why do they make you have to use shoot two? So, because when we're guiding, um, the biggest threat on on what is perceived as the biggest threat to guiding is um, the damage an elephant can do if it's not dealt with properly, and and so you need to prove that you know how to how to um if if it comes down to it, you can you can kill an elephant okay. and know how to do it properly and and efficiently cuz so it's is it what is what is actually properly to be able to to take down an elephant so um so I must admit so now you're going through your apprenticeship and when you're doing your apprenticeship they just want you to have the experience of having Having shot two elephants, they don't okay. they don't insist how you do it, but your your um, your what did you call them your 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 full PH or or guide who you're working under will normally be um, advising you and trying to get to teach you what what's going to be happening. Okay, and so he will try and get you into a situation where you will carry out the brain shot. Ah, uh, okay, and and learn how to carry out a brain shot. So that it's you know that's that is the way how you will drop any any dangerous animal, and that's what you guys would call your anchoring shot. No, so a, a brain shot is a brain shot is a brain shot. Okay, an anchoring shot is where we shoot to 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 
immobilize an animal, and that's generally um, you'll be shooting for the spine. Okay. So it's, I mean, obviously a brain shot does anchor an right. animal, but it's not what we actually refer to an anchoring shot. An anchoring shot is, is an, an, a shot that stops an animal leaving. Mm-hmm. And then it stops the danger for the for having the client. Yeah. So just um, diverting a little bit on the thing. So like on an elephant, the anchoring shot will be, we what we call it anchoring shot is at the base of the tail. If okay. An, if an elephant's leaving, so an elephant that's been wounded and it's running away, if you shoot at the base of the tail, um, or at the at the top of the big hip bones, and you break its pelvis or you hit its spine, you'll anchor it because the elephant will will drop. And then you have to shoot it and again. Th- and then you'll have to get around in front of it and brain it yeah. and kill it. But but you'll anchor it, which is important because then now you're not chasing it through and then putting yourself back in danger. Yeah, again. so so it doesn't get away basically. Because people don't really realize it when you know all of those big dangerous animals. When they're now wounded, then it makes things a little bit harder having you, your trackers, and everything like that walking through the bush after these animals, right? Yeah, 100%. So, that, you know, that's our main job. Lots of people say, what is our job as, as a professional guide? Our main job there is to keep everybody safe. Mm-hmm. And so, we generally, as a rule, are not shooting unless there's um, somebody's life in danger. Right. Or, so... Our 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 job is to just to protect everybody around. So you're 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 just you're there for the the one ifs or the worst offs. So yeah, so we we there we we there for two two reasons. Okay, obviously, from the point of the of the client who's paying us, we're there to help him judge and and get him the trophy that he wants. Mm-hmm. But from the legal standpoint, we're there to keep everybody safe, safe. and to make sure that the law is adhered to. So we, 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 we actually serve two purposes. Mm-hmm. We, on one hand, are, are helping you get, get your trophy and, 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 and get you what, what you wanted. But on the other hand, we're also providing a protection service. So that's why it takes so long through your schooling and all the steps and variables that you have to go through day in yes. and day out. Yeah, so going back to what our schooling is, so once you've, once you've passed that your shooting exam and you've managed to shoot these five animals, You'll then you can then apply to undertake your oral examination. At your oral examination, you'll you'll be set before a board of five fully qualified professional hunters, other than your your uh, tutor, and they will read through your logbook and then they will question you normally for about half an hour to an hour on what experience you have, and they will they will question you about the animals that you that you've hunted on your own, um, ask you how you did it, what under what circumstances well how did you how did the animals react Mm -hmm. they'll also question your knowledge on on various things that you that they feel that you should know in the industry um if you pass that examination the oral examination you are now allowed to enter into our final examination which is called a proficiency examination and on the proficiency examination um you are split into small groups of 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 guides and and, and, and um, hunting guides and photographic guides and you're allocated one fully licensed professional hunter examiner you might be either a professional hunter or a professional guide and you're also also allocated one government uh, examiner from from our government's department of nature national parks and wildlife and they will they will take you on a seven day excursion where you have to build a camp 
you have to treat your examiners as your clients. So you have to show them how you would treat your clients in a camp. And, and at the same time, you have to hunt an elephant and a buffalo with them. And they will examine on how you stalk, how you approach. Um, you will then, how was your final shot placement? How was your reaction to if there was requirement for backup shots? Um, and then once that's been done, you then have to, they will examine you on how well you do your trophy uh, procurement. You'll have to skin the animal yourself, do all the recovery, recover the meat, distribute the meat to wherever it needs to be. So like in the case of an elephant, the meat normally needs to go to the local communities, to the schools, clinics. So you have to go through all of that and they, they're testing that you know all the correct procedures. Um, along the way as well while you're hunting those they're also going to test you on your knowledge of of um, of, of the of whatever you you might encounter during your seven days so they'll be asking you birds um, can anybody them the, the example might be if you see a, a certain bird fly past they might ask you firstly what's the name of that bird um, can you tell us anything interesting about that bird mm-hmm. and so it's, it's a very thorough examination and it's regarded as the hardest examination the zimbabwe professional guides a fully licensed guide is is regarded as the hardest license in africa if not the world to obtain and we are very proud of that we're very proud of the ethics that we hold behind our our professional guides and and we we endeavor to keep that thing our our process as as um, rigid and robust as possible. So it's very important that it's done by it's all done by the industry. So our our old professional guides and hunters are the same guys who are ensuring that the traditions, the ethics, are are being instilled through the to, into the younger generation that are coming through. And it's kind of so important because a lot of people don't actually understand. You know, going back on some of the stuff like the elephant being distributed throughout the community the and and that kind of stuff that you do like african hunting it may be looked at by by the outside as a bad thing or you know the big six and so on and so forth but there's a lot that goes into it it goes when when they do harvest an animal a lot of it goes to the first it goes out to the tribes or the workers that you have there and then it goes to the tribes and then it goes to the townspeople so on and so forth so there's a lot that goes in by those animals being taken yeah, it's um, a very big thing. Um, lots of people who who don't have an understanding of, of of the full situation that's happening on there. So, as you say, there's there's the very obvious benefit. Firstly, of um, there's there's employment creation. We obviously all have we all have trackers. We all have skinners. Uh, we all have assistants in the camps, and they all benefit from the hunters coming out. That's that's the most direct and obvious benefit. We've then got, as as Trevor's just carried out now, um, when an animal gets shot, obviously, regardless of, of what animal it is, um, we will utilize what meat the hunters may wish to eat of their of themselves. Most hunters will want to eat some of their meat. Most animals have very good eating, and so we will keep the choice cuts of those animals, but the rest... The rest of nearly every single animal species is totally utilized. All the meat will be either used, as Chiva says, by our own staff and game scouts that we employ, 
or if there's excess, it gets distributed into the local communities, quite often into the schools so that the children are, are getting protein. Quite often it's used at the hospitals or clinics in the areas to, to help patients get, get some pr vital protein that helps them recover from whatever diseases and that, that they might be fighting. So it does, pr it does provide a very um, important source of protein for the, for the communities. And then another thing that, that, that we mustn't um, forget is a lot of our overseas hunters are, are very good philanthropists. And they not only bring that, they very often bring donations for the local schools. They'll often bring uh, pencils, pens, even just children's toys to go into the hospital so that the kids that are, happen to be in a hospital have just some basic toys to, to you know, play with them. So it's th th that side often gets overlooked. You know, there's the evil hunter, but they don't see they don't see the good that those hunters do as well. I mean, SCI is very famous for their big blue bag, and those those go out all around the world and make huge differences to the communities. Um, just the joy that you can see just from a simple soccer ball, or you know, being 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 brought over there and the kids can kick it around. It makes a huge difference. Um, and these are all things that that um, people don't realize is, is also being generated by these these um, foreign foreign people coming to Africa. Yes, they're coming to hunt our animals, but they're bringing so much more. Yeah, and even the money that they put into the community also by them being there and harvesting those animals and so on and so forth. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, th they're paying a lot of money to come over there, and in most cases, that money is being used very much in, in the conservation of, of the animals. Um, I'm, I'm very much a firm believer that the animals benefit a lot. I know it sounds weird, they're going to say, oh, but they come in there to kill the animals. In, in overall, the animals benefit so much from, from foreign hunters coming over and that that money that's coming in is used to, to run anti-poaching units that protect them to provide... Um, put down boreholes to it or build dams that provide water for them year-round. Um, it, it puts so much, um, that money is so important coming in. And then not only to the animals, but like, again, like you say, to the local communities. Um, certainly in the areas where we work in Mozambique, uh, I can say that about the 50 to 60 families that are supported through our, our, in our business that we're doing there, and from the money generated by, by, by the safari industry, we by way and far the, the biggest employer um, of, of, of people. There's, there's no other real employer there. There might be some shops that maybe employ one or two people to work behind the counter or something. But there's nothing else that, that where 50, 60 families are, are, are taking home a paycheck every month. Mm -hmm. I want to go back onto the anti-poaching thing because I think that's probably one of the coolest things that you guys do because where you are in relevance, um, it's a it's a very special area where you have a huge poaching problem um, with gin traps and the poachers and the problems that you guys have. And you guys have made a huge impact on that poaching area. So why don't you go into that kind of what it actually is there for you guys with the poachers? Yeah, it's a, it's a major problem. Um in, a, in lots of places in Africa is is poaching and the bushmeat trade and on, on one hand I'm going to deviate a little bit but on, on one hand you can kind of understand it in that you've, you've got people who are living in, in, in quite
quite abject poverty and they've got a, a, a you know a, the human body needs protein and so th there's a massive drive to try and source this protein but the problem is it becomes unsustainable in, in, the, in the methods that they use and and as Trevor said that so they use gin traps which are totally non-selective um, and and rare and endangered animals are just as easily caught as as common animals um, it's a very painful and and unhumane way to die can you explain it for us like what it actually so it's like I, for equivalence like because you might not know this but it's like our normal foot foothold trap here but three times the size yeah so as as Trevor said, it, it's basically a foothold trap, but it's I think its technical name is a, is a spring jaw trap, or is is the actual design of it. But we call it in Africa, it's just generally called a gin trap, and I don't actually know where the name comes from. But <laughs> and they they as Trevor says, they're massive. Um, so some of the bigger ones are, are are quite capable of fitting around an adult elephant's foot, and so. If that slams into an antelope's leg and that it's shattering the bone, and the animals basically, it, it do, the the way that they do it is they don't they don't anchor that trap. You don't tie that trap uh, solidly to something, because if you tie it solidly to something, the animal will will pull its leg off basically and escape, and it'll still die. But but you don't get it. So they do, on purpose don't anchor them. So it's this huge weight. And what ends up happening to the animal is with the broken leg, it drags this huge weight around and, and, and they can follow it and then dispatch of it once they catch up with it. Um, so quite often, the, the cheapest way for them to dispatch of it is they like to just chop it with an axe. And I've seen some, some very terrible uh, incidents and quite uh, horrific where you can find an animal with axes embedded in their heads and in their backs. Where things have gotten wrong and it's 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 really not. Oh, they'll run around with the axes in them. Yeah, when 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 the, when the guys haven't done it correctly. I mean, I've personally took a photograph that's pretty much gone viral, but nobody knows that I took it. But, oh, but, really? But, but, I, but I did take the photograph and it's done its rounds on social media of of an, a young eland with an axe embedded in its head and another axe embedded in its rump, and and was caught with a gin trap and what had happened is we had come upon them and they heard my vehicle and they ran away they left this animal standing there. so when we got there we came upon this animal with with these blood just pouring down its head and that from where this axe is embedded in its head and it's quite a horrific thing to see and um yeah so th that's how it works is th they use these traps to basically hold the animal and then they'll come and dispatch of it. And before we were running lots of game scout units. If it was a more dangerous animal, they make homemade muzzle loaders, and they'll which are cool as hell. Yeah, I mean it's if if, if you you, you got to be fair, and it's quite amazing how they make them. You know, you got to have a lot of respect for for the skills that they have, even mm -hmm. to make these traps, because these traps are all homemade. They're not they can't pop into the store and buy one. So there's local blacksmiths who can make them. It's quite an art to make them. Um, cause like that muzzle order that, um, like they had, like, like your friend had at the show that the barrel was made out of, um, a Toyota steering column. Yeah. Quite, quite, quite often the, the, the barrels are steering columns. Um, you, you find the old one where they've managed to somehow, um, they've obviously found one of the old muskets from 
the Portuguese colonial era or something. They've managed to find one and they've salvaged the barrel. And so, but quite often the barrel is is yeah is is a, is a steering column. Um, you know, they manufacture their own hammers. You know, their own trigger mechanisms. It's it's it's, it's quite a. I mean, it's quite amazing that that these guys can make them. I mean, they don't have the two. The tools that our gunsmiths that we know, but right. but they can make a functional flintlock, and and then um so that that's quite often used. I mean, they can hunt with them in their own right, but quite often that's just used to finish off, especially one of the bigger animals or dangerous mm-hmm. animals. Exactly, like if they happen to have caught a buffalo, I mean, then yeah, then they'll use their muzzle loader to go and finish it off. Um, they also sometimes use own homemade versions of longbows and they'll shoot them with bows and arrows so yes but the primary weapon is is the trap that's where it starts and then from there you you can kill it however with an axe or shoot it or so how do you go about finding them in these in these anti-poaching operations so how we do it is we obviously we employ local local people who have grown up in there and they obviously have the knowledge of of, of how how it's done um, quite frankly, a lot of them are turned poachers. When we manage to catch poachers, we we we, we will sometimes offer them the, the the opportunity of, you know, basically reform your ways, come and join our team, and 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 work against what they used to do. So they they very they very good in that they they bring a lot of inside information mm-hmm. on on how they operate. But and then these guys, we deploy them out normally in groups of of five. They have to be a minimum of three. Because every now and again some mistake might happen, and they might stand in a trap themselves, and you need at least two guys to release you from a trap it's It's quite an intricate process that they have to do to open one of those traps once it goes off, and you need at least two men to do it so they always operate in at least three in a group, but normally we we have them going as five, and they'll just go out um for seven days at a time into the bush. And they patrol, obviously going to areas where they think are likely where where poachers would be looking to put these traps. Quite often around water holes, uh, big game paths. If there's natural salt licks, natural mineral deposits, they'll go and check around those places. And and it's amazing they can they can see them. Um, but I tell you, for people, even myself who's worked there for a long time, it's very hard to see these things. In fact. Quite often, I I can't see them. Uh, they can see them buried, covered up, and and they'll and then they obviously then they just pick them up. Um, and then if if it's like at a water hole that's been trapped, they'll try and set off the traps, and then they'll go into ambush and hopefully catch the guys coming back to check their traps. Or if they find where a trap has already gone off and it's caught an animal. Um, they'll obviously try and put that animal out of its out of its misery, um, but also they might find that the poachers have already come there, already killed the animal. Then they might track them, and they'll try and track them back to wherever they've. Um, because normally, what happens when you kill the animal, it's too much meat for the one poacher, or maybe two poachers who are there. So what they'll normally do is set up a drying a drying table where they basically smoke the meat so it lasts a bit longer, and then one of them will also go back and call some more villagers come help carry the meat now and that normally gives our guys some chance to get there and actually sometimes catch them and 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 get the stuff back so that's that's basically how it goes they're crazy that they have like a whole new second sense when it comes to finding these things then 
yeah, it's it's amazing how 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 they can see them and and it's it's quite a quite an experience just to see the guys working and and how they can yeah. So your area is a little bit like not evolutionized like some of the other areas that people are are hunting in. Yeah, so that's why as, as you as you referred earlier, we we kind of say that we we starting to let the safety belt come off when you when you come hunting by us because. Yeah, we're starting to get away from um, the home comforts. Right. We're a bit further away from your local amenities. Um, it's, it's, um, yeah, going a little bit. It's not as developed. So, yeah, it's, you you're stepping away from civilization. And now. with and with that, when you're hunting the big dangerous game there, that when something goes wrong, you're not close to medical help. Yeah. So that's that's our biggest. Um, I wouldn't say fear, but it's it has to be something that's always in our mind. Mm-hmm. That be careful, don't be bloody stupid, because even just breaking a bone, there, there's no hospital close by. Right. Um, so you know, we just try and try and try and limit the chances of of something going wrong. And then obviously, yeah, you 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 want to be very careful with when you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation with with, with the big animals. And you're working with with some of these animals are survival of the fittest. So, I mean, anything could happen. Yeah, I mean, that's, to be honest, our biggest fear is, in terms of, uh, our biggest fear with, 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 with these dangerous animals in our area is, um, is coming upon an animal that's been injured by, by poaching. Right. Because... If our clients or even ourselves maybe have wounded the animal, we we know he's there and we're ready for him. And and, and we, we're gonna go and try and sort out the situation as fast as we can, whatever and but but we know what's there. Right. The problem we have is when these gin traps have been set and as we were saying earlier, maybe a lion has stepped in it. Now lions are lions and leopards are, are a different story to most other animals obviously they're very dangerous but when they get caught in a trap they can bite their foot off and they'll chew their own foot off to get the trap gone okay but now you've got a three-legged lion that's really pissed off Mm -hmm. and things get dangerous and well it's just really pissed off and and because he's down to three legs and he's got a, a really sore foot maybe it's getting infected he's not in a good mood he's struggling to hunt i mean he's struggling to catch an antelope but Humans are the slowest things out there. Right. Maybe it has to turn to trying to eat people because we can't catch animals anymore. Right. And these are the are, are where where our biggest problem is, is is we get these animals that we don't know they've been hurt, and the next thing we can walk upon them, and it can catch you not not ready. And if your training hasn't been done properly, um, this is where the problem can can come in and you had a there was a recent case where somebody had got attacked by a wounded leopard not even knowing that it was there yes it it happens i mean unfortunately it happens all the time i'm not not regularly but every year we'll have a couple of incidences throughout southern africa not um touch wood we haven't had one for a very long time um but yeah we had a guy um get injured by one in in zimbabwe where yeah he he got mauled by a leopard that really he 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 didn't even really know it was was there and he got quite badly torn up because he wasn't in a situation where he could defend himself or 
or act in, in a way to kill the leopard. Right. So what do you do when, when say you're hunting dangerous game, say elephants, Cape buffalo, or leopard lion, and a client shoots not the best shot, and now you have to go in and track. Like, what is your next step to going in and taking care of that animal? So, um, every situation is different. Of so course. It's, it's different. So, with elephant, buffalo, you've, you, they generally, you've got a bit more time. If you can see your client has, has pulled off a bad shot, you can normally get one in almost straight after him. Right. And you can, what's what we call a backup shot. And we'll normally shoot, on, in that situation, we'll normally try and put a bullet somewhere through the engine room, what we call the, the, the heart-lung area. Mm-hmm. Um, so just try and put a bullet through there and, and, and hope that that'll, you know, bring it down. Um, on, on the cats, it's a lot harder. It's a much quicker. You, you don't often have a chance to put in the backup shot. You, mm-hmm. you, even with the cats, it's quite hard to even see where, where the animal was hit. It's a bit different to with elephant and buffalo. Normally, what'll happen once once that happens, the first thing is obviously we will we give the animal a chance to to go off and and possibly let's see if it might die by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time, while it's down, you'll obviously have a conference with the, with the client, try and find out how did he feel about the shot, where did he think possibly he's hit it, just to. Try and get it, I mean, quite possibly maybe you've seen where it was hit, so you right. know, but you still ask the client, well, how did you feel? Did you feel good? Did, did it? Um, in the same time, it's just b- giving you a bit of time, letting something happen. And then from there, yeah, if, if once you've given it maybe 15 minutes or so, um, then you've got to take up the, up the blood spore. And that's when our trackers come in. We have, they're amazing, really amazing guys. I mean, obviously they'll help us track even just following the sport to catch up with the animals, but they really, really come into play now when, when they come onto wounded animals. And they can track that blood. They'll find just the smallest drops of blood. Um, they, they have to walk in front of us because they need to look for the blood and, and it's our job to protect them. Right. So they'll go in front of us um, following that blood uh, and we just basically now take on the role of protecting them. They'll find the animal. We just got to deal with it when they find it. And that's um, just trying. Sometimes if it's really thick bush and that, you might, you might. Most clients want to come with you, um, and and you'll you got because you you also got to try and monitor that situation um, to make sure that nobody's going to get shot. Right, because that's the next problem. You suddenly this buffalo breaks out the bush in front of you. You don't want somebody shooting from behind you trying to shoot it, and the next thing he shoots you through the shoulder. Or these these mistakes happen. Guys, yeah, because guys, they're on edge too. Yeah, people. You know, yeah, you all you you all bumped up on adrenaline, and 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 you you know you're looking through a scope on a rifle, and we know how rifle scopes work. You don't see things that are right in front of you. Right. <laughs> and you and PH professional guides what have trackers have got shot by so you try and manage that situation you try and tell the guy look stand off to to my side so so that you're not shooting from right behind me mm-hmm. um, make make sure you know where he is at all times 
on lion and leopards, we sometimes even give a talk and say to the guys, look, understand, if the lion gets or the leopard gets on top of me, don't just shoot it off me because the bullet's going through. They're small animals. Right, right. I've, I've <laughs> going to have enough holes in me already. I don't need a bullet hole. It happens. And you're going to have broken arms and legs and whatever. Yeah, and, it, and it happens. Guys have got shot right. by people trying to help them. So we, we do try and tell them, look, guys, if, if, if it happens and, and it does get on top of one of us, get down low, shoot, try and shoot from below so that you're shooting up. Don't, don't shoot down on, because there's a person underneath that animal. Right. Um, yeah, so we try and, you know, try and go through those things. I mean, we would just, um, you know, also, you, you've, you've got to read the situation. And it, and it's hard because, like you say, there's adrenaline, you, there's friends being hurt, and and you have to act. Um, luckily, I luckily I've touched wood. I've never been in a situation where I've I've had to shoot an animal off somebody. Right. But um. You've heard some of the worst stories that. Yeah, I've I've heard heard some of them, and and I've had. I mean, my brother's been involved in a few where he's had to um, shoot animals off people. And. It's not only that. It's it's even an, if an if an elephant is attacking a person, suddenly it becomes a situation where you can't brain the elephant because if you brain the elephant, it's gonna dr- it's gonna fall on top of him and right. five five tons falling on a person is gonna kill him. Um, so so now you got to remember, don't brain him. You now have to heart lung shoot it, and and uh, and get it to move away before it dies. You can't you can't have it die instantly. So it's always being alert enough to the to the situation and what what can be done you, you know um going back to my brother he had a situation where a buffalo was on top of a client and he couldn't brain that buffalo he couldn't spine that buffalo because it would have landed on top of the client so you, you then got to shoot it with a different shot to get it to move off and die so that's crazy yeah so you know so you you, you have to look at the situations right and when that happens, like with the client, like did the client get very hurt with that situation, or? Um, in in the one with my brother. Yeah. Uh, th- yeah, he was he was in a very bad way. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he had to be um, he had to be medical casualty out, and he was in, he was put into an induced coma for several months. And wow. Yeah, he he was just not in a good way. Ugh. But he did survive, so. Yeah, that's that's good. But th- those things happen. I mean, that's part of dealing with these dangerous animals and and hunting that way. Yeah, so that's that's why they called the dan- you know, they called the big 5, but they should be the dangerous 5 or the dangerous 6 as they <laughs> sometimes pull it around to because they're the ones that that can do a lot of damage to you. Right. But having said that, all animals can hurt you. Absolutely. Afri- <laughs> Humans are the slowest animals out. We're also the weakest animals out there. Animals that are half our size will throw us around. Uh, y- y- don't mess with a, a warthog. Really? A warthog will, will knock you into the air, cut you open. It's got teeth that will slice you up. Um, I didn't even think of a warthog being as one of those animals that would. Yeah, no, it it'll do serious damage to you, and and you know people who who, who don't realize that warthog's not not shot well, you know maybe it's it's shot well, but it's you know it's been lower spined or something, so it's not dead, but it's not going anywhere, and they'll walk up and try and grab it. Well, that thing will bite you and slice you open, and that's it's got teeth that are like razors. 
Well, it's made to live in the bush. Yeah, and so, protect itself. And I've seen, I've seen, a, I've seen a couple of trackers even get hurt by water dogs, just not being, not thinking. And those guys know the best. Yeah, and and you know you like just say to them, and and then they just say, oh, you know, it happens. You have these moments, and so you can't afford that when you, as the guide, you are in charge, and to keep everybody safe, you have to be have your wits about you. And mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to even shout at the guys, hey guys. Remember what we're doing here because, you know, don't let go into a false sense of security. Oh, we're only hunting a bushbuck. This isn't going to hurt me. Bushbucks have stabbed many people. They have, they have, they're a very aggressive little animal. Um, well, they, they're there to survive. Yeah. They don't care. The adrenaline goes. I mean, it's as, as simple as, you know, the guys that are, you know, dealing with whitetails. When something's injured and you back it into a corner, anything's liable to happen. Yeah, exactly. So you, you just got to always be aware. Don't 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 think ah, this is like I say, bushbuck. It's a little. I mean, I don't know if, if I don't know if many of your listeners will know what a bushbuck is, but it's it's smaller than your white tail deer. It's it's a small antelope. It's probably about I don't know maybe fifty kilos. But if if you if you wound it, it can become a very mean little guy. I mean, it's right. it's got very sharp about. 14 to, to 16 inch horns and they they pretty much straight just like little daggers right and he'll quite happily run them through you so just That's be aware nuts. you know people think oh we just wounded a bushbuck don't worry let's just go waltzing and then get him it can end badly it'll turn on you yeah it can end badly if you if, if you're not careful That's crazy one of the things that kind of also kind of strikes me a little and, and kind of strikes a chord with me honestly is some of the 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 importation or exportation for you guys of some of these animals to get them into some of these countries it's not only the u.s the uk germany so on and so forth are having problems with the importation also yeah so um uh, we've we've got a lot of a lot of people who are misinformed who, who are driving their governments and asking their governments to to think that they they're doing the animals of Africa a favor by by banning the importing of the animals, and it just all it does is it just makes it makes it so much harder for us to to continue operating in the way we have. Um, it, it it puts a lot of hunting areas into serious uh, jeopardy of of closing down, and 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 the reality is Africa. In Africa, we have a saying, if it pays, it stays. And so if, you, if you've got an area where the animals are there and there's money coming in and people are being paid and government's earning money, that area will stay. So the wilderness area stays. If the hunting dries up, then the wilderness area must go to something else that will that, pay money. And then it's inevitably it's going to end up becoming agricultural land. It's going to be... Chop, the forests will be chopped down, they'll plow the land, and they'll end up being massive cornfields. That's what the wilderness areas will turn to. And so that's the biggest worry is hunting protects a lot of land through hunting um, and, and keeps them as wilderness areas. Mm-hmm. We have our national parks. Don't get me wrong, they're the, probably the most beautiful areas of, of, of the countries. They've got fantastic um, scenery, whatever. They were made national parks, and they are protected, and that's fantastic. But it's the edge 
wilderness areas, which is where hunting is carried out, where it's not so beautiful. People aren't coming just to take photographs. But the animals still live there, and the hunters can come and generate funding that can, that can allow those areas to continue being wilderness areas. Mm-hmm. Make them pay, because otherwise they're not going to be left there. Right. They'll, they'll bring something else that... And, and that's, that's, that's the biggest thing that, that we have, that we need to be telling people that <laughs> it's, it's more than... When, it's like I said to you, it sounds, it sounds ironic when I say that, that probably the biggest benefic- beneficiary of hunting is the animals. And you think, well, how can it be they the ones being killed? Well, we're only killing... In, if we're doing it right, we should only be killing the old, mature animals that are past their breeding, past their, have passed their genetics on already and are probably already going into what would be be the twilight of their life mm-hmm. and quite pro- possibly even in, in many cases saving them from a horrible death of starvation as their teeth have worn down. And It's the majority of the population, the 90% that aren't being hunted, that are benefiting. They, they're getting the money coming back. They're having their area looked after having their habitat protected and the people are happy the people are saying hey we're earning money we're getting jobs to look after these animals and and so they are benefiting if we stop hunting we're going to lose the massive areas and i think people really don't understand going back on what you're saying we're killing those mature animals like you guys have areas that you you have rules and regulations to this like a like a lion for example has to be a minimum of five years old and you want to shoot them somewhere around seven years old. And then like Cape Buffaloes, they have a certain size that they have to be or an age or creed. You know what I'm saying? And you, you same with your elephants and everything like that. A lot of the times they get kicked out of their their pride or their, I don't know what you would call. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you, you know, that's that, that's another thing that is part of our tradition and our ethics that we try and instill on our our professionals and our guides that are coming through is that um, we have to go away from any fascination of tape measures. Of course, you always like to shoot a big trophy, but that is not what's important. What's important is to be shooting the right animal, which is the, the age that must be a mature old animal that's 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 past his prime um that that's what is should be hunted as a trophy we do sometimes remove animals that are that are not old not not whatever and the reason for that is because they are they will have genetics that we don't that that we think are detrimental to the population um i'm sure you have it the same with deer you might get a uh we we might see a going back to to bushbuck, you, you you get a bushbuck that's had a horn broken off, and now he's only got one horn. He becomes a killer ram because if he ever fights any other anim- any other rams, he's only got one horn, and it goes between the other ones. So their normal system of fighting, where the horns lock up and they can fight each other, suddenly that doesn't work because he's only got one. It doesn't lock, and he always goes straight through and ends up now he just stabs other animals. Oh, so now he's killing other animals. So he can become a problem animal. Um, 
you might get, uh, you might just, sometimes we just take out an animal because he just really has a defective horn and you just like, we don't want that defective genetic to carry on, um, you know, to be passed on. But in general, you, you we want to hunt the oldest, um, old animals that are past their prime. They, they should have already finished breeding. And, and yeah, so they can, we, we feel they can be removed. And a lot of people don't understand, like, with, like, the lions, right? And I know that's a very yeah. crazy subject <laughs> because it's a very hard subject to talk about because that is, like, the number one fired-on thing. Hippos, elephants, giraffes, and lions. Yeah, so we have a, we have a saying, and, and it's not true, but we say people only care about the cute animals. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, so lions are quite contentious. I mean, as Trevor says, we we really, really try hard to, to, to shoot the oldest lions that we can. And it, it, it gets contentious because people people don't realize that even if possible, the lions that... Be, that I know exactly where Trevor's trying to go with this because we get these lions that be, get familiarized with and obviously that's because they've been around for quite a few years. But that makes them the, the ideal candidate for what we should be looking to, to hunt. And, and unfortunately, by the same token, when these lions <laughs> that, have, that have got old they are getting kicked out of their groups by young male lions. That is the system of, of, of how lions work. And it's right for us to hunt these old lions that have now been kicked out because they can actually become problems. But because they've been around for so long, they, they've, become, they've become celebrities that they shouldn't be. Right. Well, when they get kicked out of their pride, now they're going to get their food elsewhere. They're not with the pride. They're going well, in towards the people and well, where they shouldn't be, right? Well, that's that's what happens. Is um, so yeah, you you get so obviously the pride is living in the prime territory. Okay, the pride is going to be living where the best area is, which is normally going to be where the most animals are, which is generally in the national park or the wilderness area. So what ends up happening is if, if the young males have come in and kicked him out, he's got to go to the edges. Well, on the edges, you're now getting to the boundaries. And you start pushing out into where people are living. And yes, they quite often become problem animals because they've been pushed out of the, out of the prime things. What can happen with lions as well, um, if you understand lion social structure, is generally those big male lions aren't very good at hunting. The lionesses do the, do the hunting. The big males do do protection of the pride by keeping other lions out, keeping other predators like like hyenas away, but they don't actually do the hunting. Now suddenly, when that big male lion gets kicked out the pride and he's got no more females hunting for him, he starts he can start to get hungry because he's not he's not the best hunter. He's been pushed into into areas where there are people, and these lions can also again start becoming man eaters and and problems because. Even if they don't turn to, to eating men, the next easiest thing to eat is domestic cattle. They're nowhere near as fast as catching. And so they quite often become 
problem animals. Right. And then and then you know. But they're celebrities. Well, this is the thing. Some of them, <laughs> they've got, they've become well known. <laughs> and sometimes they're well known because of their problems that they that they cause. Yeah. Well, Ed, you know, this is this is kind of one of the things, and and Africa is just one of those things that a lot of people don't understand, and they don't get it. They don't. They don't. They need to do a little bit more research and really listen in on people that know what they're talking about and not assume their own opinion. Yeah, look, it's it's like everything. It's I've I've it's it's not my place to go and to to talk on how doctors should be treating us for a disease or something because I know nothing about it. By the same token, those people who who haven't been in the industry and haven't been at the front of the f- face and don't really know the ins and outs and the workings of it maybe should either try and find out more about it before you shout about it exactly like you've you've, you've just said it's all of us in in all walks of life just yeah leave it up to the people who the professionals yeah the yeah the professionals in in, in that thing to to come to come to a, I've a, I'm, and I'm diverting inside this thing of an, I have a saying quite when I when I sometimes get um, attacked by people and they say to me you're a killer and you a bad person all you're doing is killing animals and, and I say to them explain to me this it's a simple solution my livelihood and everything is generated from, from animals why would it be in my interests to kill my livelihood? Surely I am trying to make my animals do as best as possible so that I can survive and, and continue my, my, my business. It's of no interest of mine to, to actually get rid of animals. And it's as simple as that. I would not try and make sure that every lion was dead in my area because I benefit from lions. I make some money hunting lions. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. It's like a tennis yeah. player going and attacking the tennis ball company and saying, "Don't make tennis balls anymore," so they can't play tennis. Yeah, but it's if yeah. that's a good reference. Yeah, <laughs> but but you know what I'm trying to say. So yeah. I often just say to people, I say, "Yeah, it, it, why would I be trying to kill my own industry?" You're not. You're going to build yes, it. That's what course. we do. That's that's our thing. That's where conservation comes into a huge play. Well, that's where. They don't understand that the conservation dollars that goes back into it, either it, if it is South South Africa, whether it's the U.S., whether it's Canada, it doesn't matter. We we as the people are the ones that are putting the money and and doing the conservation to keep these things alive, so we can continue to do them. Hundred percent. Um, it's it's if people go and look into the facts, I don't have the figures on me, but the biggest contributors to conservation. Oh, hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's fantastic organizations, as you say. We're here at, at Dallas Safari Club this week and or this week and over the weekend. And it's just amazing the amount of work that they do through their member members who are hunters, donating, contributing back to conservation. You guys see direct money from Dallas Safari Club. Yeah. So, um, quite a few organizations and, and, and things in, in, in Africa are benefiting directly. 
Um, you can go onto their website and and it's very well documented. Oh, they on, put the figures right on there. Yeah, you if if you go into um not necessarily the figures, but if you go onto Dallas Safari Club Foundation website, they they list certainly all their all their big projects that they support, mm-hmm. and 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 you can see what they're putting into them. Um, they there's this I can't remember all of them off the off the top of the head. The ones that I know that are running. They've got projects where they've they're funding air, uh, light aircrafts for carrying out aerial surveillance, um, carrying out aerial f- game counts to monitor the populations. There's there's projects where they um, just just simple things of of helping people put uh, uniform and put boots on the ground where they can't in, in anti poaching units. They're supporting um, uh, projects where where hunters are helping the local communities do um more modern and and better farming practices um implement better farming practices as opposed to just slash and burn where they just chop down the virgin forest and burn it and then grow a crop for two years and then slash down another piece of forest Mm -hmm. next after two years and you know so they they they've got that going on they've got they've got so many different projects that are all benefiting and and it's not just Atlas Safari Club. There's there's many. There's SCI. There's um, I, th- I think Ducks Unlimited. There's there's so many different hunting organisations that are that are giving back. Um, and and even smaller, even smaller things like um, uh, there's African Wildlife Conservation Project. There's numerous. Um, there's the Cabela's Foundation. There's International Hunter. Yeah, there's Peasants the, Forever. This, I mean, there's, yeah, there's, yeah, there's hundreds just so of many. But what it comes down to, it's hunters doing so much for animals and wildlife and conservation that around the world, it's not just Africa, but in Africa, it is mainly. I mean, well, it's just it's just constantly in in the news. It's always in the limelight. It's it's always talked about. Africa is like the not the epitome, but like. They're underneath the microscope constantly. Yeah, so you see, Africa's Africa's a special thing. Um, you know, Africa because they, for for whatever reason, Africa has been seen as an undeveloped country, and that it doesn't have the infrastructure of of, of North America, it doesn't have the infrastructure of Europe, and. While we appreciate that Africa wants to get to there, they want to de- they want to become that developed country. Mm-hmm. We need to learn from the mistakes that were made by the de- by the by North America by Europe. They lost their biodiversity. Um, Europe, in particular, uh, <laughs> Europe nearly lost all their deer. They nearly lost all their. They certainly lost all their big predators. The bears were gone. The wolves were gone. The bison, the European bison, were gone. In in the majority, they. I mean, they, we luckily there were small remnants, and they're managing to bring them back. And we have to make sure Africa doesn't make the same mistakes. Right. In developing Africa, let's not lose the amazing wildlife diversity that Africa has. We yes, we cannot deny Africa its chance to do to develop. Let's learn from the mistakes we made. I mean, America lost the passenger pigeon. They lost the, we, you know, animals went extinct because we didn't know. But now we know. We don't have that excuse to let it happen again. 
and 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 that's where it's important that we need to we need to help Africa do it develop but do it the right way and the one way of doing that is is making the the, the wildlife valuable mm-hmm. letting the wildlife be part of the way that that they can develop and I think that's very important that that that, that we use that system absolutely and and with that I want to ask a question that we normally ask everybody and it 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 People may not understand in your answer because it's not in their front lines, but one of the questions that we ask everybody is, if there was one thing that you can change in the hunting industry, what would it be? Uh, I think one of my main things would be that hunters need to actually just protect each other. And, and, and to say that, you get some people that say, well, I only duck hunt, so why am I going to go and worry about the guys who are going to go and shoot elephants in, 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 in Africa? Well, because it's all hunting, and, and, and all hunters should stand together. Um, we see the hunting industry get very divided, even the guiding industry. And that's one thing that we're very proud of in Zimbabwe is our, our photographic um, sector is very much with our hunting sector. And they back us. They they are at the they are one of the few where obviously we have some rogues or whatever, but in the general, our photographic sector guides will stand with us. We've been through the same examination process, we've been through whatever, and they will generally stand with us and say, Hunting is good. It's it has its place, it serves its purpose, and we can't afford to lose it. Um, and that's why I said to you, we, we have our place where we have absolute protection. They are national parks. Our national parks do not have any animal get killed in there. And that's right. But we also want our peripheral wilderness areas. They need to also flourish and function. And, and that is where hunting plays its role. And generally the way African systems are set up, you have your national park, which is totally protected, and it is surrounded by wilderness areas in which hunting is conducted, and that acts as a buffer and, a, and if you want to call it an airbag or, uh, or whatever, protection of the national park. It buffers it, it, it looks after it, and it's vital. If we lose those areas, the next area is the national park, and then we get, we're going to lose everything. So it's very vital, and we, we, we the wilderness, the wildlife industry, have to stick together. We can't be fighting each other. We're actually all trying to do the same thing. I think that's, you know, that comes across the board, not only in Africa, but it, it happens here in America where the hunters attack one another. I think our own worst enemy in the hunting industry across the board is our own selves because we attack one another for, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I don't think that we need to band together and stick together and help one another, not shame on each other. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, I obviously we come over here. We we we've got a very different setup going on in Africa and whatever. But yeah, we we do keep our our, our ears to the ground and try and see what's happening in, in other mm-hmm. countries. And just like Trevor says, some some of the city things that that we're doing, you'll see some places where bow hunters are possibly ridiculing the the rifle hunters. You know what, guys? You're both hunters. So let's. Let's stick together. Let's not try and pull each other apart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you one guy might be a duck shooter, and he or he just likes 
shotgun shooting, so whether it's ducks or pheasants or whatever, but and he doesn't like the guy who's sitting in a blind waiting for a deer on the other side because you're annoying my 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 bird shooting, my pheasant shooting or whatever. <laughs> we we got to embrace each other and somehow understand that we're all hunting and it's one industry that we're protecting. Um, Trevor will will bear with me. We 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 had a very we met some very interesting people at the show and a guy today who we happened to meet who was saying the same problem that they're having in Europe. And one of the biggest problems is just hunters not standing together. We all they're all hunting, but they turn around saying, "But that's not my hunting. So why should it be my problem? It's all of our problems." And we need to fight it together, no matter what it is, wherever you are. Well, Ed, man, I'm going to come down to the last question. And it's one of the most important questions to everybody is, what drives you outdoors? What drives me outdoors? Not your car. <laughs> uh, Not your tracker. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's a way of life for me. It's, it's how I grew up. I mean... I, I've I've had a very privileged upbringing. I I was born basically, obviously I was born in a hospital, but I, almost my whole life I've lived in a in a safari camp. Um. So yeah, it's just it's just just in my blood. It's 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 what I am. Right. Um. It's yeah. It's uh, you know when I when I just to draw it out a bit. I mean, I didn't realize how special my life was until I went to university and when I was studying uh, zoology and, and, and that at, at university and I couldn't understand why these people were getting so excited that hey this weekend we can go and see elephants or this weekend we're going to go see a rhino and I was thinking I've seen hundreds of those damn things I grew up with them they, they, they live just outside the tent I have a pet <laughs> and then yeah <laughs> and then so that's when I suddenly started realizing that actually I've lived a very special life and I've been very privileged too to have grown up the way we did. And um I just hope I hope that my 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 little nephews, I mean they're not little anymore, they're not teenagers, but they've at least got to see it and I just hope that it happens for many more generations that they can still enjoy the the lifestyle that we got to live and um see the animals that we got to live live with. Absolutely, man. Well, before we finish off and kick this thing off and we get back and go grab a dinner, um, why don't you tell everyone kind of like where they can find you, your website, maybe some of your social media links. Um, I'll attach them here at, at the bottom, but uh, if you can just let those guys know where they can find you. Okay, so um, I'm obviously, I'm on on Facebook um, just under my under my name. So um, and then the company Western Safaris is also on Facebook. Uh, we're on Instagram under the same name, Western Safaris. Um, yeah, our website we've got uh, we've got website is westernsafaris.co.za. It's a South African-based website. And yeah, that's pretty much. And if you're interested in maybe talking to Ed about doing a hunt or getting a little bit more information, you're more than welcome to reach out to him and. Yeah, if you if you know certainly we obviously through through Facebook we very easy to get hold of us. You can just private message us straight there, or you're welcome to get hold of me directly even on 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 my Facebook or you know through the through the website. You can you can pick up our email addresses or or whatever. And yeah, just drop us a line. Or even if you want to just harass me and tell me that 
tell me that I was talking like a fool on your show. <laughs> well, Ed, man, I thank you a lot, man. I'm glad that we did this, and it probably won't be the last time. Uh, we still got a couple more days in the show. But um, thank you for joining us here on the Outdoor Drive. And everybody else, thanks for taking the ride right here on the Outdoor Drive.